When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, and we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, author of the novel Love Marriage. So, Sugi, you and I both write about war, and we've been, and I at least, have been trying, well, you know, we both have been trying to pay attention to what's going on in Ukraine, where tension has been mounting over the prospect of Russia invading that country. There's a growing Russian military presence near Ukraine's border, um, near the border between Russia and Ukraine. It seems to me like there's a, this is going to be a huge test for the Biden administration. And I think of myself as someone who's pretty good at following the news, including overseas. But as I've been reading, I realize that I don't really know as much about Ukraine as I should, probably. I do not either, and also was kind of attempting and failing there. And since you and I are very low-key and relaxed and generally extremely chill about research, I thought we could invite some low-key people to talk to us about Ukraine, its history, and its writers. You are not... Okay. I don't... <laughs> That's a sarcastic comment. Fine. We've done, we've done a lot of research, actually, on Ukraine since we decided to do this episode, but we do have some excellent people who know a lot more than we do on this. And so... Later in this episode, we're going to be talking to Marcy Shore, an intellectual historian who teaches at Yale and has written about the connections between Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian politics. But first, we're excited to talk to my friend Anton Trinovsky, the Moscow bureau chief of the New York Times, about his reporting on Ukraine. Yeah, super low-key. Moscow bureau chief of the New York Times is the guy (laughs) we got. What can I say? Anton arrived in Moscow in January 2018 as bureau chief of the Washington Post. He's traveled to three Russian-controlled disputed territories from Crimea to the Kuril Islands to cover the Kremlin's geopolitical gamesmanship. He spent nine years at the Wall Street Journal, where he covered commercial real estate and telecommunications in New York. And from 2013 to 2017, he was based in Berlin, where he covered two German elections, two Olympic Games, the Ukraine crisis, migration, and populist politics in Europe. And that was where I last saw you, Anton, in Berlin, around the same time that we started this podcast almost five years ago. And it's so exciting to see you again. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you with us. Great. Thank you for having me, Sugi. Is it more fun to do commercial real estate or what you're doing now? Uh, I mean, commercial real estate was fun, I have to say. You know, it, it was 2008 when I started the financial crisis. It was quite an interesting Oh, yeah, time. there was some yeah, bad stuff yeah, happening yeah. there. But, yeah, this is different. Well, <clears throat> we're speaking with you. It is Saturday uh, at this time when we're talking. It's Saturday evening, January 22nd in Moscow, where you are. The show comes out next Thursday in the morning. Ukraine, which is one of Europe's largest and most populous countries, has long been contested territory. 
But we're at a particularly sort of difficult moment there with the military presence from Russia growing near the border. Uh, Russia already annexed Crimea in 2014. And there's a lot of speculation that they're going to invade Ukraine now. As everyone knows, yesterday, you and Michael Crowley filed a story about the talks that the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, and Sergei Lavrov, Russia's Minister of Foreign Affairs, are having had about in Geneva about Ukraine, uh, which led to an agreement for more talks. The headline, which I know you don't write, is... U.S. and Russia take a more measured stance in the Ukraine talks. And the peace talks about both sides trying to give diplomacy some time. That seems good. Is there some chance that an invasion could be averted here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. And I, I w- would tend to, I think, agree with the assessment that you hear a lot out of Washington these days that Putin himself hasn't decided what to do. Um, certainly the, all these military movements, um, these troop deployments to Belarus uh, that uh, we're seeing right now look very ominous, but it feels like Russia has certain political goals it wants to achieve in this situation. And, you know, it remains to be seen whether or not they can achieve some of them peacefully. Like what? Well, do you think they're trying to get... I mean, the, the, the Ukraine is, is definitely the, at the core of this crisis. It's not all about Ukraine, but that really feels like the most important factor. So, you know, they've put on the table a very, very far-reaching uh, set of demands. This is kind of like a, a sort of a, a Russian approach to diplomacy that we haven't really seen before in this um, intensity where they they published these two draft agreements uh, with the U.S. and NATO in December and said, this is this is what we need. We need it very soon or else there will be some kind of unspecified what they called a military technical response. So um, anyway, so so the, those, you know, and those demands essentially would mean a rollback of the NATO presence in Eastern Europe, a um, legally binding guarantee that Ukraine never enter NATO, that other Eastern European countries that aren't in the alliance right now never enter NATO, that the West withdraw its troops uh, from uh, countries like um, uh, Poland and and the Baltic states that are already in uh, NATO that joined after 1997. Anyway, it's a very, very long um, list, but, you know, it's if you look at it, as the start of a negotiation, then perhaps there is some compromise to be had. Certainly that's what Antony Blinken and also Joe Biden have said. They think there is a way to find a diplomatic solution here. Question is, is there something there that Putin would be willing to accept? Just a couple of days ago, um, Biden made that comment about really sort of thinking it would happen and, and this article mm-hmm. seems to sort of position the rhetoric is getting reined back in. And yet at the same time, I was really struck by the numbers. I think a lot of Americans know that Ukraine vaguely is important, but are probably having a hard time following the kind of entangled history here. And But we're, we're putting an enormous amount of money into this. So we've already spent $450 million in, in aid to Ukraine this fiscal year. And, and then you noted that it's going to be another $250 million on top of that. Yeah. What does that pay for? What is that able uh, Well, that's, I mean, that's uh, mainly military assistance that we're talking about. I mean, the, the West has 
since the, the, the pro-Western revolution in Ukraine in 2014, um, the EU and, and, and the US and Canada have um, tried to help Ukraine become a more uh, modern state, uh, essentially, so doing kind of governance projects, anti-corruption projects, but a lot of it is is indeed military assistance. It's uh, in recent years that's included um, a javelin anti-tank missiles. Uh, just yesterday, on 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 Friday, came the news that uh, the Baltic states would be supplying Stinger uh, anti-aircraft missiles. That um, similar to to what um, the U.S. supplied to the Mujahideen in in, in the Afghan uh, war. So. Yeah, it's it's military aid, but it's obviously not anywhere close to what Ukraine would need to actually change the balance on the ground between Ukraine and Russia militarily. I was going to say, it sounds like a lot of money, but it's also only slightly more than the chiefs are paying their quarterback <laughs> over the next 10 years. So I can understand why it's not enough to stop the Russian army. Yeah, I, I think um, that's right. In your story, you, you write that the U.S. has said it will provide a written response to mm -hmm. Russian demands, which include NATO withdrawing troops from territories that you were just talking yeah, about yeah. that are formally aligned with the Soviet Union, like Poland. I don't understand why Russia thinks it gets to make demands in this. What I mean, is this is like, do they have an objectively genuine grievance? Or are they just like holding Ukraine hostage and saying, we're just going to shoot Ukraine in the head unless you do these things that we want? That's it. Right. So... I mean, their answer to that would be if, well, if, uh, you know, Russia was trying to bring Mexico into a anti-U.S. alliance, the U.S. wouldn't like that either. That, that's sort of the way that people see that often here in Russia. But of course, uh, you're right. I mean, core to kind of the, you know, the, 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 the liberal world order that... Um, the U.S. built after the end of the Cold War is that every country gets to decide its own alliances, um, and that would certainly include Ukraine. I think that this idea that NATO needs to withdraw from, again, as you say, countries like Poland that have already joined NATO, that's kind of one of the most out there um, seeming uh, elements of, 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 of these demands. It's certainly almost impossible to imagine NATO agreeing to that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we can talk about how, how, how true this is or whether Putin really even means it, but certainly what Putin says is that he sees NATO, a NATO presence in Ukraine as a, as a major threat to Russia that he has to somehow address. So, okay, that's what I'm trying mm -hmm. to figure out. Like, so, but Okay, we've been giving money to Ukraine, but is there actually a NATO presence? Because the because Ukraine is not a NATO member, there yeah. and, you know the, there haven't really been agreements signed that I know of between NATO and Ukraine, or maybe I've missed. Well, the, there was mm -hmm. in twenty thirteen they were going to sign that agreement, and then Yukashenko, if I'm remembering the the president's name, he refused to do it. Right, that was the beginning of Yanukovych. the Maidan. Yeah, that's past, right. Which we'll be talking. Well, that, about. Oh, sorry, right. that, that agreement. I get those well, that up. agreement was between um, Ukraine and the EU. That was okay. what kind of kicked everything off back in 2013 was when Ukraine was going to sign an association agreement with the EU, basically bringing Ukraine closer to the West. Uh, Luke, uh, uh, Yanukovych, the president at the time, was actually going to sign it and then essentially 
Putin convinced him not to sign it, and uh, that led to that explosion of, 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 of discontent that, that led to the revolution. So uh, you're right, the NATO presence in Ukraine in the grand scheme of things is, there is no official um, uh, NATO presence, but there are uh, individual NATO countries that are working with the Ukrainian military, as we already said, sending them lethal defensive weapons, also training, you know, there's a, there's a U.S. Um, uh, armed forces are there, uh, training um, the Ukrainian military. Uh, the uh, U.K. has uh, been working uh, with the Ukrainians on their naval capabilities. So it's, of course, it's, it's, yeah, it's very small. It's certainly not something you could imagine actually um, threatening Russia militarily, but um, that's what Putin is talking about, and sort of, and what you hear from him is is that um, this is growing and growing and will eventually threaten Russia. But I think the big question to me actually is why now? You know, why after all these years is this happening? I was wondering that. I mean, just sort of what mm-hmm. makes this the the tipping moment of he's yeah. he's had enough and i was like is there something else around here that looks good that i'm missing <laughs> yeah it's it's um it's really hard to say so like i said it is there is it is the case that military western military engagement with uh ukraine has grown uh though again it really there doesn't seem to be any scenario how Ukraine would actually join NATO in the coming years. But, but a lot of circumstances have, have changed. So first of all, uh, Ukraine has a, has a president, uh, Zelensky, who was elected in, in 2019. You, you all, I'm sure, know about him, this guy, a comedian. Who our president tried to bribe and threaten and to re- about this exact issue, basically. Uh, right, right. And, and uh, you know, he's a, he's a comedian who had a TV show in which he was playing the Ukrainian president, and so it was then pretty... Uh, uh, amazing to see a guy who played the president on TV become the the, the actual president. But anyway, uh, Zelensky was someone who, when he came in, he, uh, was seen as someone who might be willing to do a deal with Putin because he came in really promising to end the war uh, in eastern Ukraine. And um, but then over the last year, Zelensky took a much uh, more a sort of tougher anti-Russian line. He he even uh, put sanctions on um, Putin's uh, a friend of Putin in Ukraine, uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, uh, who uh, and shut down his TV channels, the pro-Russian TV channels in Ukraine. So that's one thing is is that is that um, uh, Ukraine has continued to move uh, closer to the West, and uh, um, if if you look at the polling, that's what what a lot of people there want. Um, But also circumstances in Russia have changed. I think Putin feels significantly more um, secure in terms of domestic politics. He's really managed to eliminate uh, essentially the the domestic opposition, um, the drive. Obviously, Alexei Navalny is in jail. His allies are all in exile at this point. Um, And uh, he sees a, a West... Uh, in which he has an opportunity 
perhaps to to change the the, the facts on the ground um, in terms of Angela Merkel uh, no longer in power in Germany President Biden someone who when you look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, for instance uh, looks to be someone really trying to reduce um, America's in, in involvement or in in various places in the world so yeah I think Putin is kind of a uh, these these sorts of tactics are are important um, to understand what he's up to. And I think there's a lot of tactical maneuvering uh, going on here. You're the we have you here because you are the fact person. The New York Times takes objective reporting mm -hmm. seriously. And we're the people who say the crazy opinionated <laughs> stuff. and We can say whatever we want. So you don't have to actually comment on this if you don't want to. But I mean, it just seems to me, you know, the, the difficulty here is that is that if this is effective for Putin, if he's like, here are my demands, you must give me written responses mm -hmm. to them. And all I've had to do was like move my troops to the border with Ukraine. He can do this whatever he wants. You know, I mean, what what is ever to prevent him from just doing this all day long if he realizes that it gets mm -hmm. the results that he right, wants? Right, absolutely. And others could be doing it too. Uh, you know, uh, China being the most obvious um, example, surely watching what's going on here and drawing conclusions from it. Um, uh, and, and I think you also have to, and, and that's, as you say, the fact that these are demands, like if you were engaged, typically when countries are engaged in diplomacy in trying to come to an agreement with another party and make compromises, you wouldn't publish your initial demands publicly, right? You Because that takes away your flexibility. Because then if, if the Russians make any concessions at all, everyone will be able to see that they made a concession because they published their, all their initial asks. So um, that's why there is really a, a, a concerning theory here that we can't rule out, uh, which is that Putin isn't interested in, in getting a deal. He's just looking to go through the motions to be able to say to his people and to the world that, well, he tried diplomacy, it didn't work, and so now he has to resort to another option. I think that's that's one way to interpret this. I was wondering, because, I mean, it, for the reasons you say, I mean, to, whether one can understand those demands, to what, to what extent one can understand those demands as genuine, and to what extent there's kind of like an elaborate kind of political performance art going on. I feel like I, I watch him and I'm, I'm always like, I remember <laughs> mm -hmm. you were you were in the KGB. And I don't know. So it seems like there's sort of like elaborate psychological maneuvering going on. Yeah, political performance art is a really good way to put it. That is indeed something that has been honed uh, by the authorities here in Moscow over the years, uh, you know, with uh, look just looking at how much they've invested in into RT, um, the pro-Kremlin television network, if you look at just the enormous investment that goes into Putin's um, inaugurations, the annual World War II victory parade, um, his annual State of the Nation speech, his annual big press conference, his direct line call-in show that he does every year with, with Russians, it's all stage-managed to really, some might say, an exquisite uh, degree. And, th and, and so, yes, so this looks like it could be part of that. So I'm curious, speaking of um, Russia kind of stage managing things, that in some coverage I've been reading about, um, you know, referendums in heavily Russian areas of Ukraine, um, you know, indicating support for Russia. Uh, and then I also have read a little bit about Ukrainian nationalism and its different forms. And I wonder if you can talk 
a little bit generally about Ukrainian nationalism and also what it means when kind of Russian aligned forces or, or, or Russian politics kind of show up in the Ukraine and, and indicate, oh, these parts of the Ukraine would like to be in some way independent. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, Ukraine has such a tangled history, right? Um, It um, was, was obviously, much of it was part of the Russian Empire, was part of the Soviet Union, but the Western part was also, you know, part of the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, etc. That's that's just a small, small tidbit of of, of that tangled history. And... um, and so th- there have been nationalist movements in 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 Ukraine um, over the years that um, are also seen so differently, um, depending um, on uh, what part of the country you're in and depending on your own family history, right? Like there's so many Ukrainians are people who moved there from other parts of the Soviet Union. Um, um, so... Anyway, so so there's, and and what I was getting at with 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 that tangled history is that it it, it leads to a situation where um, people's uh, heroes, the historical figures that they attach to uh, Ukrainian identity, uh, vary so much from person to person and 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 from from place to place. I remember um, Zelensky, the new president, his, his New Year's address um, from a couple of years ago uh, when he said, we're a country where uh, some of us can um, honor a statue to Stepan Bandera, the Ukrainian nationalist leader, and then others can honor a statue to a Soviet general, I believe uh, was, was how he put it. So uh, it's, it's, it's a very, uh, it's, uh, that's a very um, a complex issue. Uh, as for support for Russia, so the main referendum that happened in that regard, or what was what the Russians called a referendum, was the uh, Crimean uh, independence referendum in, in 2014. I even, I guess you can't see it, but I have a little uh, uh, poster uh, in my office here that I that I picked up off a lamppost when I was there in Crimea in 2014, covering that. Um, so uh, that was a situation where, indeed, I mean, I could feel it most of the people there, or at least a large number of people there, genuinely wanted to join Russia at the time. But they were also totally under the sway of uh, propaganda, essentially. They were watching Russian TV channels that were portraying the um, uprising in Kiev as a uh, fascist coup, which it wasn't. And so um, the the kind of these this question of pro-Russian attitudes, it's tied up so much with media consumption. It's, you know, it's what, what TV channels do people watch? What YouTube videos do they watch? What social networks do they use? That that's also a really complex issue. And then uh, like one, one, one last point I would make on that. Well, and it doesn't sound yeah. completely different than the United States, yeah. you know? Yeah. Your opinion well, on Kyle Rittenhouse depends on whether you watch Fox News or CNN. Absolutely. And, but, but, but actually, but I think... It's it's also a kind of a a dangerous question viewed from the Russian perspective because if you listen to Putin, he's convinced that um, Ukrainians are being torn away from Russia by the West against their will, that they're being brainwashed to be quote unquote anti-Russian and pro-Western, and 
the, and, and, and that, you know, people who speak the Russian language in Ukraine are, are discriminated against. And I actually this year, or I guess it was last year, I, I, I went to um, one of the most Russian-speaking parts of uh, Ukraine, the Kherson re- region just north of Crimea, um, where I talked to a lot of people who told me that they considered themselves Russian or, you know, had deep roots in Russia and certainly spoke Russian, but at this point had no interest in actually being part of Russia. So um, I think you really have to separate the, um, the, the identity question in Ukraine from the political question there, are, and certainly from the language question. There are people who speak Ukrainian in Ukraine uh, who want to be part of the West, and there are people who speak Russian in Ukraine who want to be part of the West. Um, and um, it's it's certainly much more complex, both than how it's presented here, but also I think how it's often perceived in the West. That's so like those are such interesting like sort of counter narratives of self determination. Like those arguments kind of going in both directions, and it's interesting to think also about Russian identity as separate from the borders of Russia. Um, which I think is not how we can, most Americans are necessarily conceiving of it. Whereas, you know, 30% of Ukrainians, right, speak Russian as a first language, which is a really high number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it would be, look, if you you go to Kiev, it's a Russian-speaking uh, city. Increasingly, people do speak Ukrainian there uh, too. And, and, and there are many people who treat that as a sort of political decision that they... Uh, you know, they'll speak Russian with their parents who grew up in the Soviet Union, but then with their kids, they 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 speak Ukrainian. Uh, but but yes, uh, that question, that question of Russian identity versus Russian language versus the borders of the Russian Federation, that is kind of that gets pretty close to the core of what we're dealing with here. Uh, right. Putin said that the. Uh, collapse of the Soviet Union was a tragedy because it left tens of millions of native Russian speakers outside the borders of of Russia. Uh, obviously, many of those people did not see it as as a as a tragedy or a catastrophe. But <laughs> Putin's generation, uh, I think, there are many people who do. Right, and we're making lots of references here to Crimea and to the. And mm-hmm. I was was as I was reading about this, I was realizing. I mean, how how deeply embedded this debate is in the culture. Because I was reading about the, the soccer kit, um, right? The European League soccer kit had the Crimean Peninsula on, like the Ukrainian uniform had the Crimean Peninsula on it. And then these militaristic slogans, and they were allowed to keep the map on the kit because it's the UN recognized Ukrainian border, but they had to take off the militaristic slogan. And I was like, this, I, this was not where I expected this argument to be happening. Um it seems to have really. Yeah, I mean, the, the 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 sort of Russian authorities, they, you know, the, the, these international organizations are one of the levers of of of, of influence that the Russians have here. They're part of, uh, you know, things like the Olympics or the European Soccer Association. Um, they they're part of those organizations and they can influence them. And yeah, that's where you see these things collide quite frequently. It's kind of wild. I, so you've been covering mm-hmm. Ukraine, I think, since since 2014, as you referenced. And I wonder how does this moment feel different to you um, compared to earlier crises? Yeah. Um, what's 
Look, what's different is the way the stakes have been raised. Um, back then in 2014, that, that was certainly also a scary moment because you didn't know what was going to happen. Um, uh, there were, at, for a few months there in 2014, Russia was sending signals that it was going to try to take over um, a much bigger chunk of Ukraine than it ended up taking over. Um, but, you know, that was one where um, Russia was... Crimea, obviously, that annexation happened without a shot being fired, without anyone getting killed. Um, the Donbass war, the war uh, fomented um, by Russia in, in eastern Ukraine, uh, the, the, the separatist conflict, um, more than 10,000 uh, uh, people have died in, in, in that war um, since 2014. But that one, too, it's, it's, it's one where while Russia was involved in it, um, uh, behind the scenes or, uh, you know, undercover, um, the modern weaponry of the Russian military was not uh, used. Russia was trying to maintain deniability in that conflict. And so what, what's I, really worrying right now compared to what was going on in the past is that Russia looks to be prepared to let go of that deniability, to actually openly wage war against Ukraine. And openly waging war against Ukraine means something totally different. It means, uh, you know, uh, missile strikes. Uh, it means potentially, you know, a, uh, uh, airstrikes. Um, it, it, you know, you, you think of like the shock and awe campaign at the beginning of the Iraq war in 2003, that's the kind of thing that military analysts uh, when they're trying to game out what could happen are talking about so this is just a much um even though this crisis has been high stakes now for, for since 2014 things now feel even more serious and even more uncertain now that is very interesting to me because i haven't had somebody use that comparison that that this invasion would look like the shock and now that like an aerial bombardment and, you know, all this, that seems, well, that's quite, that's more than what I even thought would happen. You know, I guess I wasn't really thinking about what the well, invasion would really look like. if it occurred. Yeah. And, and again, we, it's this total speculation here that we, we should, we right. should obviously be really You're careful You're quoting about. military but, experts yes, who I, are guessing. I, I am, but, 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 you know, but still it's important, I think, to note because we do have to understand the stakes of, 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 of what's going on here. If, 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 if something happens, it, it could be, you know, really, really bad as something much worse than what we've seen so far in 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 Eastern Europe in in recent years, um, and 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 a lot and a lot of people's lives would be um, would be at risk. But but uh, I should also say though that that I think there is a wide sort of widespread agreement that um, Putin, uh, given the questionable amount of domestic support that he would have for a war. We can talk about that separately, but it's not, it's not like there's people in Moscow in the streets demanding that he invade Ukraine. Quite the opposite. It, it's, it would be very scary to, to Russians um, as well if that happened. Uh, but, but given that, you would, military analysts also say that he would try to avoid civilian casualties and, uh, and, and look to... Um, basically de destroy the uh, Ukraine's military capability um, and not uh, attack cities, for instance. Um, but again, these, these all would be really awful um, uh, scenarios and, and we're not there 
uh, we're not there yet. This kind of thing is not inevitable. So in our exchanges prior to this interview, you'd mentioned to me that you'd gone to Bulgakov House in Kiev. And we've been talking a little bit about Ukraine's split identity. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your visit there and how it connects to Ukraine's unique position between Russia and the West. Yeah, um, I uh, this was last uh, April uh, when I was in Ukraine actually covering the last Russian military buildup um, uh, uh, around Ukraine and the last time that people were afraid of a of an invasion, I um, had some time to go to the uh, Bulgakov House Museum um, on the Andreevsky descent in in Kiev, uh, uh, where he spent part of his life. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a fascinating visit. You know, Bulgakov was a was a Russian language writer. When I arrived, uh, the tour guide um, asked if everyone spoke Ukrainian. I said no. Uh, she did the tour in Russian, which obviously everyone uh, understood. She, you know, she quoted from Bulgakov in Russian, and I realized that if she had done that tour in Ukrainian, she would have been speaking in Ukrainian, but then quoting Bulgakov in Russian. Um, I remember it, it had artifacts and uh, from his uh, apartment in Moscow. You know, it was really hearkening back to a time when um, there wasn't, a lot of people didn't see much difference between um, between Russia and Ukraine. And I know that in Ukraine um, over the years, there's been even uh, controversy around how to treat uh, 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 Bulgakov, um, again, given that he's a was from Ukraine, writing in Russian. And uh, yeah, so, so anyway, so that's just one tiny little example of, of the, 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 the sorts of connections that exist um, between these countries. I mean, everyone here, it, it's, it seems, has uh, some kind of family connection to Ukraine. You know, I was born in Moscow, but my, my, my mom's uh, parents were Jews from Ukraine who moved, who moved to, to, to Moscow in, in, in the middle of, of the century. Um, and it, it also honestly, I think, leads to this sense, as I was saying earlier, that here, not only would people be, I think, scared of a war with Ukraine, but they just can't imagine it because of how how many connections there are be- between these countries. And honestly, if you look at the discourse inside Ukraine right now, um, there too, people can't really uh, imagine, a lot of people can't imagine um, Russia actually invading, uh, doing it in a way sort of beyond what what, what has happened already. So yeah, so these, these, these connections are totally fascinating. We could, we could talk about it for a long time. Well, Anton, we're glad we got to talk to you about them for this amount of time. And thank you so much for joining us from Moscow in the evening. Uh, it's morning here where we are. We really appreciate it. Listeners, to keep following the situation, please follow Anton's reporting in the New York Times. Thank you guys for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much, Anton. Of course. And now we're thrilled to talk to Marcy Shores. Marcy teaches modern European intellectual history at Yale University. She is the translator of Mihail, uh, she told me how to say this and I'm going to get it right, Gwowinski, The Black Seasons, and the author of Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1918 through 1968, The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of of Revolution. 
In 2018, she received a Guggenheim Fellowship for her current book project, A History of Phenomenology in East Central Europe, tentatively titled Eyeglasses Floating in Space, Central European Encounters That Came While Searching for Truth. She has written about Ukraine for The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, and The New Republic, among other places. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, we really appreciate your joining us. We just talked to Anton Trinovsky about the current political situation in Ukraine, which he's been covering for The New York Times. But we'd like to talk to you about the historical and artistic antecedents to that situation. So we wanted to start with some very basic recent history. We were just discussing how to pronounce Maidan, so, which I think That's I That's a lot right. easier so, than the one I had to do. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm getting away with the, the easy assignment here. But what was the Maidan for our listeners, and, and when and why did it happen? Well, the Maidan is a place. It is the large city square in the center of Kiev, but it has now become a name for a revolution, which is also called the Revolution of Dignity. And the story of that is, I mean, it's very much a post-Soviet story. You know, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, Ukraine, somewhat by default, gets its independence in 1991. There's a long period of post-Soviet transition and struggles for democracy. In 2004, there is an election between two guys named Viktor, um, Viktor Yushchenko and Viktor um, Yanukovych. The short version of that story is that Yanukovych, who is very much the post-Soviet gangster type, um, tries to poison Yushchenko with dioxin, which to a certain extent succeeds, um, and cheats in the election and thereby declares himself victorious. At that point, Ukrainians go out onto the street, onto the Maidan, the big square in the center of Kiev, for three weeks. They protest. It's peaceful. And somewhat miraculously, it works. The election is done over. The votes are counted. Yushchenko is declared the winner. Everybody is happy. They go home. Um, and it seems like now may be the moment when everyone lives happily ever after and Yushchenko is going to lead us to European integration and liberal democracy, which back in 2004 people were still thinking might represent the end of history and we were all going to live happily ever after. And then the even shorter version of that story is that Yushchenko turns out to be a disappointment and there's infighting on his team and it all falls apart. And in 2010, Yanukovych wildly and probably decides he's going to return, which it really seems like it couldn't possibly happen, but he hires a really slick PR agent from a little boutique industry in Washington, which is basically PR for you know, gangster types who would like to become president. And this guy, even though he doesn't know Russian or Ukrainian, goes over and gives Yanukovych a makeover and a new haircut and some new clothes and helps him with his speeches. And Yanukovych comes back in 2010 to this time legitimately win the election. Um, and he is who he always was. Um, but he still, he, at the same time, he nominally seems to be leading Ukraine towards a potential course of eventual European Union integration. 
you know, which is what a lot of people in the opposition to him really, really care about. Um, and in 2013, he was all set to sign this association agreement with the European Union, which was not an extraordinarily great agreement. I mean, it would have involved Ukraine undertaking costly reforms. Um, it likely would have provoked retaliation from Russia. It promised at the end of the day, no, you know, no, not necessarily European Union membership, but it was a foot in the door. It was a symbolic step in the direction of Europe. You know, it was a promise to the young generation that Europe might be open to them, if not today or tomorrow, then someday. And everything was all ready. The ceremony was prepared. The pens were laid out in Vilnius. And then at the 11th hour on November 21st, 2013, um, Yanukovych, under pressure from Putin, says, no, I'm not going to sign. And at that point, there's this sense of despair. Above all, on the part of a young intelligentsia, on the part of students, you know, and still nothing might have happened, but this 32-year-old um, Afghan-Ukrainian journalist posts a note on Facebook that day and says, hey, you guys, you know, if, if you're really upset, come out, you know, let's be serious, come out to the Maidan by midnight tonight. And then he said, likes do not count. Um, and later that line struck me because I thought likes do not count, you know, and I'm translating literally from the Russian. It was often mistranslated, but there's no reason to mistranslate it. It's a rare moment when it translates perfectly. You know, it's literally likes do not count. That's a sentence that would have made no sense before Facebook, right. literally, you know, and it now, now it becomes a revolutionary slogan, you know, for the 21st century and people come out that night. Largely young people come out that night. Um, and it's not just because students are always more active. It's not just because they're always more idealistic. They also have the most to lose. Whether or not Europe is going to be open to them, you know, sets the horizon for, for their whole lives at this point. They, they come out on the, on the city square. They also come out in lots of other smaller city squares and smaller places. They're not interested in language politics. They're not interested in ethnic politics. Like their slogan is Ukraine is Europe. That's it. Like they just, they want Europe to be open to them. They want to be part of Europe. They don't want to deal with political infighting. They don't want to deal with representation from political parties. They just want Europe. And the whole thing might have fizzled out you know, had Yanukovych not decided some nine or 10 days later um, at the very end of the month to send in his goons, his Berkut, the riot police at four in the morning to brutally beat up the students in an act of violence that hadn't been seen in public on that kind of scale against nonviolent protesters really in the time of Ukrainian independence. So it was a violation of the social contract. I think, not that I have any privileged epistemological access to what was going on in Yanukovych's head, but that he's thinking like, okay, you're going to do something shocking, you know, and the parents are going to freak out and they're going to pull their kids off the street. And that was where he miscalculated. Because instead of pulling their kids off the streets, the parents joined them there. A day later, you've got close to a million people on the streets of Kiev. No one has ever seen that many people on the streets of Kiev. And now it's no longer just Ukraine is Europe. Now it's, we will not let you beat our children. That was how the Maidan got started. I should let someone Well, that's talk. okay. I, I was actually thinking it reminds, I mean, so much of this, and we'll get to this later in our talk, like 
reminds me of things that President Trump has done. It reminds me of that when he cleared that square uh, out near the White House to go like hold the Bible up. Uh, seems very similar. But let's keep, we're going to stick here and sort of connect some dots here for foreign policy challenged Americans like myself. Um, the, these Maidan protests eventually oust Ukrainian President Yanukovych. He leaves, goes to Russia. Is that right? He sort of flees the country. Yes. Okay. And then not long after that, Putin decides, Vladimir Putin, who runs Russia, boss of Russia, um, that they're going to annex Crimea, which is part of the Ukraine, seems directly related to these protests, to me anyway. And, um, and then that works. It happens. They just take over part of the country. And, and the question, unfortunately, that I suspect most Americans will have is, why is Ukraine relevant to us? I think that, you know, countries fight over their borders all the time. One possible answer that I found really helpful was in an article you wrote for Foreign Policy, which was called Ukrainian Corruption is Trump's Native Language. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you came to that conclusion. I was just reading up in preparation for this episode. I was reading about, um, I don't know, the corruption rankings and how highly y- Ukraine lands on that list. Um, we spend a lot of time and- thinking about what Trump's <laughs> native language is on this show. <laughs> um, but I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how you came to that conclusion and, and read to us from your article. Um, yes, of course, I'd be happy to. Um, I was following what was going on in Russia and Ukraine very closely in 2013, 2014. Now, I, of course, am a Slavicist, you know, and so every, you know, every day, everywhere, you're all across the world, there are people making decisions to risk their lives on behalf of values that may seem crazy, may seem idealistic, may seem noble, you know, and of course, we can't possibly pay attention to them all every day. But in some sense, you know, the world is divided into people you know personally and people you don't know personally. And so when there are people you know personally who make that decision to go out on the streets, it's impossible to turn away. And I know how I felt during the Maidan was quite similar to how friends of mine from graduate school who became historians of the Middle East felt during the Arab Spring, you know. In some profound way, I feel like we are all, you know, we live in this world together. You know, we live in this world in an interrelated way. The direct connections that later emerged between what was happening in Russia and Ukraine and the United States were, I would say, an unpleasant surprise. Um, But if I understood sooner than a lot of my friends and colleagues in the States what was happening here when Trump came on the scene in 2015 and then through 2016. It was not because I was smarter than they were, it was because I had been following what was happening in Russia and Ukraine. You know, and there were things there like post-truth, you know, that I, I understood what they were just a little bit faster because I already had the concept in my head. Um, that was, of course, you know, not something that had ever been desirable. I mean, in some way, you can look at the story that Frank Foyer tells of some very good articles and say, okay, you know, Yanukovych got this slick PR guy to give him a makeover. Um, he's very grateful, gives him lots of expensive caviar after he wins the election. You know, then, you know, he has to flee the country after committing a massacre, you know, on the Maidan in February 2014. He flees across the border to Russia. Well, that slick PR agent, whose name was Paul Manafort, is out of a job. And we all know what he does next. Um, Fucking Manafort. And so, He's everywhere. I, 
Seriously. No, and, and Frank Foyer wrote a great piece, you know, back when Trump was running for president and people like myself were very, very nervous, but I, I didn't think he was going to win. I was afraid he would, but I didn't think he would. And Frank wrote this great piece saying, basically, you don't think that Trump can win. You don't know, for, you, you, know you don't know Paul Manafort. And I had met Frank at Kiev, you know, in 2014. And I like it. He understood what he did because he had followed what was happening in Ukraine. You know, and that, that's one of the many ways in which we're all living in this world together. Um, and then there were certain motifs, which is what I wrote about in that article. You know, one of which was I think a lot about language because I'm a writer and I write about intellectual history. And so we're always thinking a lot about language. And one of the things that came up during the Maidan was a word prodajnost. Prodajnost in Russian, prodajnist in, in Ukrainian. And it literally means saleability. I mean, you, you, could, you could talk about venality um, in English, although it doesn't quite have that somewhat quaint Victorian register that it does in, in English. And it's an alternative word for corruption. But it's slightly different. You know, if you think of corruption as a kind of concrete instance of something or a concrete practice, prodajnos, the saleability, refers almost to a kind of existential state. The idea that anything and more importantly, anyone, you know, can be bought or sold. You know, and so you're living in this world where there's this idea that people can be bought or sold. And this is the world of the gangsters. This is the world of Putin. This is the world of Yanukovych. All right, I'm going to read from an essay from the Decoder series in Foreign Policy um, titled Ukrainian Corruption is Trump's Native Language, which was published in October 2019. The Revolution of Dignity is the name given by Ukrainians to the events of 2013 and 2014 that culminated in a massacre in Kiev Central Square, the Maidan. Here the full meaning of dignity emerges only in opposition to two other words, proizvol and prodajnost in Russian, svavilia and prodajnist in Ukrainian. Ukraine is a bilingual country. Proizvol means arbitrariness in the sense of arbitrary will, caprice, abuse of power. It is the antonym of rule of law. It suggests an absence of all legal boundaries. Prodajnost means the quality of being for sale. It is a second word for corruption, the first being the cognate, corruptia, although the two are not precisely synonymous. Prodajnost is larger than corruption, akin to an existential state. It speaks to a way of being as opposed to a particular crime. In general, prodajno suggests a situation in which anything, and more particularly anyone, can be bought or sold. In other words, it evokes a situation in which everybody has a price. A long Central European tradition has held that when times turn dark, philosophers begin calling back to Kant. This is such a moment. The relationship between price and dignity was the point of departure for Immanuel Kant's moral philosophy. Whatever has a price can be replaced by something else as its equivalent. On the other hand, whatever is above all price and therefore admits of no equivalent has a dignity. For Kant to be a person is to have no price. It is to be neither replaceable nor exchangeable. To be a person is to have dignity. The revolution of dignity is perhaps best understood in this Kantian sense. 
a revolt against Prodajnost and Proizvol, the essence of which is being treated as a thing and not a person. In the years since the Maidan, the struggle of the Ukrainian political reformers has been this. How can they make that moment of transcending price and asserting dignity last? On the other side of the Atlantic, in the United States, the trend in the past years has been in the opposite direction, away from dignity toward Prodajnost and Proizvol. In 2004, a decade before the Revolution of Dignity, Ukrainian presidential candidate Viktor Yanukovych and his team were found to have committed widespread election fraud. They were also widely believed to have poisoned Yanukovych's opponent, Viktor Yushchenko, with dioxin. At that time, mass protest on the Maidan succeeded in forcing a second election. This time, Yushchenko was declared the winner. Afterward, it seemed impossible that Yanukovych, so thoroughly discredited, could ever come back. Yet Yushchenko proved a disappointment, and Yanukovych hired a slick American consultant whose boutique industry provided high-level PR for gangster types with presidential ambitions. In 2010, Yanukovych reemerged to win, this time legitimately, the Ukrainian presidential elections. The consultant's name was Paul Manafort. Following his victory in the 2010 elections, Yanukovych gave Manafort a thank you gift, a jar of black caviar worth over $30,000. As president, Yanukovych embodied the free reign of Proizvol and the culture of Prodajnost. The latter had begun long before Yanukovych's presidency and enveloped everything from parking meters and billboards to university exams, construction permits, and medical care extending to the court system and ministerial post. Everyone's used to it, explained the Ukrainian poet and novelist Serhii Zhadan. It's become as if a norm and it doesn't appear anonymous to just go pay off the teacher so that the kid doesn't have any problems. Many Ukrainians look to eventual European Union membership as a distant hope of the rule of law. Thank you very much. I have to say, when I read that part about um, the back to Kant idea in, in Europe, I thought well, it would be really nice if people in America even knew who Kant was. <laughs> Crying out loud, <laughs> we can go back to Kant. Um, so, uh, uh, but bringing, we've already mentioned Manafort, you know, appearing in, in, in both the Ukrainian and, and American presidential elections. And so it seems to me not surprising that the major foreign policy challenge of Biden's presidency would be Ukraine. I mean, that's that's why we're doing this episode is because Russia is about to invade this country, it seems like. Mm -hmm. um, you see all these connections. You talk about the, the fraud that Yanukovych committed in 2004. Trump tried to commit election fraud in 2020 and would have been happy to do so if he could have pulled it off. You know, they both at some point had Manafort as an advisor. There are all these parallels, you know. It seems like these people are learning from each other, the people who are in mm -hmm. favor of this, everything should be bought and sold and, and people should be treated as things style of government. We're now living in a world where there's a level of interconnectedness that feels unprecedented. I mean, one of my friends and colleagues who is a sociologist originally from Kiev, lived in Petersburg, then in Germany, and now works in Vienna. And she said, you know, when I used to get on the plane, you know, to go from Vienna to Kiev or, or Petersburg, I felt like I was going into a different world. And I don't feel that way anymore. Like now I feel like we're, we're all in the same world and the pathologies of this world are inescapable because they follow us wherever we are. 
And I, I, I definitely have that sense as well. So Putin's ambitions in the Ukraine focus on specific regions, including the Donbass, which is the eastern part of the Ukraine, kind of along the Russian border. And and that's presumably where this invasion, if that's the right term for it, and of course, Putin and the Kremlin, and the Kremlin are, are saying that it's only military exercises. Um, but no, that's where this is going to happen or where it's already happened by the time this episode has come out. I don't I'm not sure. But um, and this is also the fictional terrain of one of the Ukraine's best known writers, Sherhi Zadan, who you've also mentioned. And you you wrote an excellent New Yorker article in 2016 about him. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about his connection to the Donbass region. Yes, I would love to talk about that. He's a phenomenal writer. The Donbass is a post-industrial mining region in the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, you know, so Ukraine is a large country. You know, it's, it, it's a large country, it's a diverse country, it's a vibrant country, it's a bilingual country. And the bilingualism is very important. You know, and I'd be happy to talk about that at some other point um, if you'd like to. The, in 2014, I mean, it seemed to the extent that anybody was able to follow what was actually going on in Putin's head, he was trying to instigate instability in Ukraine by trying to instigate rebellions and war wherever he could. You know, so in the spring of 2014, it was very unclear where there was going to be a war, where there wasn't going to be a war. You know, it looked very possible that, you know, Kharkiv, Odessa, what was then Dnipropetrovsk, um, a city that is now just called Dnipro, um, Donetsk, Luhansk, Slovyansk, it seemed that a war could break out any of these places. So-called Russian tourists, you know, were... You know, coming across the border to try to instigate that, and nobody knew exactly what was going to happen. It's not clear to me that Putin knew it was going to happen. He manages very quickly to, you know, illegally annex Crimea by sending in so-called little green men. Um, the the little green men, you know, refer to guys in unmarked camouflage who just appear, you know, obviously, you know, Russian agents of some kind, but not claiming membership in any identifiable body or military division and take over. Uh, this, by the way, another point of connection, we got our own very own little green men in Oregon. Um, at the at the beginning of the pandemic, you might oh, remember, I remember those the unmarked vans protest. that were going around. Yeah, was, exactly. They were yeah. little green men. They were literally little green men. Like nobody's, you know, it's unclear exactly who they are. They don't seem to have to follow any rules. They're not under the rule of law. They've been somehow, you know, called up as, you know, as like hit guys for the president, but they seem to be operating outside the framework of any kind of rule of law. So that's what happened in Crimea, you know, and it happened quickly, you know, and he was allowed to get away with it in a way that shouldn't have happened, but nobody seemed to know what to do. Um, still more brutal, I think, has been this war that has now just been going on in a kind of simmering way since then. You know, and after failing to provoke the separatist rebellions in Odessa, Kharkiv, and Dnipropetrovsk, he succeeds at certain places in the Donbass, this mining region um, in the Far East. You know, and it's a very strange kind of a war. Because at the beginning of the war, it's, it's not exactly an invasion, but it wouldn't have happened without elements of an invasion. You know, there are guys coming across the border. Some of them are Russian soldiers explicitly. Some of them are 
Russian volunteers. Some of them are Kremlin agents. Some of them are local thugs. You know, some of them are local guys with Russian nationalist inclinations. Some of them have their own separatist inclinations. Some of them just seem to be random local thugs. Nobody knows exactly who they all are. And there's a lot of anarchy. Um, one of the stories that this, this wonderful young Polish journalist who did some of the best reporting um, on the war in the Donbass for the first three years there, Pavel Pinyanjek goes over there, you know, and people are shooting and people are trying to figure out what's going on. And local people are coming up to him and they're asking Nashi, Nashi, and Nashi means ours in the sense of like, are, are they on our side? Who is who? Like even the people who live in there weren't sure who is who. You know, who is on our side? Who's shooting at us? You know, who's shooting at the enemy? Who is the enemy? It seems like so much of what you're talking about is about um, the imaginability of conflict and the language get, that gets put to it. And one of the ways in which Putin succeeds in very much kind of like a post-truth or maybe in post-truthiness sense is that if you just sort of deny what you're doing, like, oh, these are military exercises. Oh, like these people are not, they're not, I'm not sponsoring them or they're not aligned with me exactly. Like my family is of um, Tamil Sri Lankan origin. And a lot of this sounds very familiar to me, kind of along the lines of the way that Sinhala majoritarianism has operated in Sri Lanka, the way that they're sort of state aligned forces is the phrase that I tend to use. And, but what does that alignment look like on the ground? And then when you're trying to explain it to Americans, like it's sort of, Right. This isn't how we imagine invasion happening. I don't right. I don't think. And so in order to stop an invasion, you have to decide that that's what it's, you're going to call it. And but you can if, imagine um, it that way, too. I mean, think about the January 6th insurrection is exactly the same kind of thing. Trump is it's just exactly like, the same problem. Hey, I just told him to go walk over there and say some stuff. I didn't know they were going to do that. You know, right. And, in, and even the hearings are sort of about those same language arguments in that way. And so, I mean, it, it's really interesting to see how I mean if if so much of this argument is about like what it's going to be called when these little green men kind of inch over the border you know they're not dashing but they're maybe kind of oozing like <laughs> in the general direction and so it's like oh it's such a slow ooze like I don't know is it is it going that way like maybe like because it makes it so that there's less of a particular moment like a decision point mm -hmm. where things would go in the other direction um which just seems like narratively like an interesting like it's a political problem and also one of it's also like a writing problem um and it, it is it, yeah and, and, and i mean there's there's no consistency exactly and like so i mean it seems like um Jadon is such an interesting um like in your article um Jadon talks about his character herman from the novel um let's see if i can get voroshilovgrad voroshilovgrad mm -hmm. ah score um he returns to the past where for him the future begins is mm -hmm is um, the quote that I'm thinking of from that, and this kind of sense of ending the forward progress of time and of returning to the past. And there's this kind of like elliptical motion in there that even just reminds me of like the way that we're talking about the motion from Russia towards the Ukraine. Like, oh, it's kind of like going, it's like this, it's like this parabola of like, but it's sort of like going, it's going in that direction, but it's like so slowly that it's hard to, it's hard to track. But like the sense of ending the forward progress of time has been crucial to the Trump movement. And it's it's kind of make America great again and, and not make America great. And I wonder to what extent the Donbass region represents a possible future, not just for Ukraine, but for all of us, if more and more countries move away from the rule of law and toward a world that is more prodajnost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there are a few things to be said there. One of the, one of the things that that novel is just 
it's a brilliant novel, and it's extraordinarily translated by a young team of, of translators, um, Isaac Wheeler and um, Riley Costigan. And it's because of Jadon's uncanny ear for the spoken language, it's an extraordinarily difficult translation project. One of the things he captures so well is temporality and the sense of the Donbass as, as a space where time has somehow been suspended. And to some of the interesting analyses that came up when the war first started to break out, you know, and there were attempts to Putin's you know, initial gambit was, well, there are CIA-sponsored Ukrainian fascists coming here to the East to massacre all the Russian speakers and to try to cast it as a kind of ethno-linguistic conflict. Um, that was you know, a fiction in various ways. I mean, Ukraine is a bilingual country. Um, Russian is, predominates more the more eastwards you go. But again, that's kind of, that's an oversimplification because it's really a bilingual country. Um, and this was not a language that was under threat in any way. And there were not actually CIA sponsored Ukrainian fascists coming to massacre anyone. I'm shocked uh, and to the, find that out. <laughs> Well, one of the things that happened Does when that I was there... that also mean there were no in, FBI who started the whole January 6th insurrection? I know. <laughs> well, well, this, when I was first for this book, when I was first in Dnipro, which was still then Dnipro-Petrovsk, which was, you know, quite close to the front line, but not on the front line. I'm not very brave. I wouldn't actually go into a war zone. But there were a lot of people I spoke to who were, their families had divided, their friends had divided, they had come over from the Donbass to get away from the war and take the Ukrainian side, and other people had decided that, well, we have to let this happen because otherwise these Ukrainian fascists are going to come, are going to come murder us. And people were saying to me, Marcy, you know, you'll never really understand the Soviet legacy. You'll never understand what that did to us. You'll never understand the lack of that democratic tradition that people are so vulnerable that they hear these stories on the internet or on television that, you know, that Putin spins out, that it was a CIA sponsored conspiracy, that they're Ukrainian Nazis, that they're coming to kill them. And people are so gullible that they believe it. You can't imagine this because you're American. Um, and when I went back there in 2018, I said, you know, I, I take your point, you know, that I will never completely understand the Soviet experience the way people who lived it do. But those same Russian trolls who were spitting those stories, you know, and sending them to the Donbass, you know, 18 months later, they're spinning stories that Hillary Clinton was kidnapping children and holding them captive in the basement of a pizza place in Washington. And millions of Americans believe it. And it arguably swings the election. And a guy goes in with a gun to liberate the children from the non-existent basement. You can't blame Homo Sovieticus for that. You can't blame the Soviet legacy, but it turns out we're just as vulnerable. We have often, we've done a several, we did an episode on like why Americans like Russian writers so much, but that was focused on like Tolstoy and, you know, um, you know, Gogol and whatever, the, the great traditional writers from before the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and we, I always think like, well, why don't, why aren't, where are the great Russian writers now? And what I realized preparing for this episode and, and, um, um, reading Jadon's, I'm reading The Orphanage right now, which is over my shoulder. Mm -hmm. um, I realized like this guy writing about the Donbass is the great Russian writer and the other people who are, uh, uh, some other Ukrainian writers that you want to talk about, um, I think are people that Americans need to be looking at because they are, his books are talking about what is happening in our country now and are useful in that way. 
um, as a sort of harbinger of writing about what America is facing as well. One of the things I, I love, one of the things I love about Sarah's writing, one of the things I love about literature, you know, when it, you know, when it's good, you know, when it's effective, it crosses those boundaries. You know, you read Sarah's books and those people become human, those people about whom we know nothing. You know, when, when I was watching what was happening in 2013, 2014, you know, I'm a historian, so I constantly had 1938, 1939 in my mind. I had Neville Chamberlain saying how horrible that we would be digging trenches and trying on gas masks, you know, on behalf of some conflict between people in a faraway place about whom we know nothing. And I thought, yes, this is that conflict in a faraway place between people about whom we know nothing that could be the thing that provokes the next world war. You know, and Serhi writes about them in a way that you no longer know nothing about them, that they become human, that they resonate. In our exchanges before this episode, you also mentioned um, the writer Rafinko, who I believe also has a new book coming out. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I would, I would love to talk about Vladimir Rafaenko. He was one of my post-Maidan discoveries. I mean, not just my discovery, but he's somebody I met after the Maidan. And he is, so Serhi is from the Donbass. Mm-hmm. Um, Serhi Jadan is from the Donbass. He writes about the Donbass. You know, he left as a student. He studied in Kharkiv, which in American terms is right around the corner, but, you know, it's not exactly there. Um, and so he was not displaced by the war. You know, he, li- he had been living in Kharkiv. He remained living in Kharkiv. He was brutally beaten up. It seemed like Kharkiv might be taken over by war, but it wasn't. So Vladimir Rafaenko is a novelist. Uh, so Serhi writes in, these are both bilingual people, but Serhi writes in Ukrainian. You know, Ukrainian is the language he writes poetry and novels in. Um, Vladimir Rafaenko was always a Russian language novelist, you know, and philologist, you know, who taught at, you know, who taught the university in Donetsk. And he was from Donetsk, he stayed in Donetsk, and he didn't leave Donetsk until he's forced to flee at the beginning of the war. You know, and so one of the themes that's very important, you know, in Vladimir Rafaenko's work, you know, is being a displaced person. What does it mean to be a refugee in your own country? Um, and when I, when I first met Vladimir, which was in, it was shortly after the war started, must have been 2015, perhaps, um, when he was briefly in Vienna on this fellowship, and I sat down to talk to him, you know, and he was one of those, and he reminded me of all the reasons I had fallen in love, you know, with East European culture and, you know, post-Soviet intellectual life, because he sits down and, like, you pour coffee and immediately you're there with, like, Kant and Hegel and Marmardashvili, you know, and Chekhov and Berdyaev, and, like, they're all right there, like, all those references. And he's... And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Russian language writer. You know, I'm, you know, I'm a Russian philologist. You know, nobody could love this literature more than I do. And now I can't even bear to watch Russian films. What has Putin done to me? You know, what has he done? He's like, our R- Russian culture in Donetsk was not under threat. You know, he destroyed it. You know, he sent people like me into exile. And for somebody like Vladimir to have to flee from Donetsk, I mean, he was a novelist, you know, of that time and place. I translated a kind of short kind of mini novella within a larger novel he wrote that is set at the beginning of the war with an almost kind of Chekhovian precision, very, very tight. It's called Seven Dillweeds um, that just captures the the absurdity and the grotesqueness and the tragedy of this war that's happening for reasons that nobody really understands. Well, one of the things I did, um, you know, by the way, during the 
pandemic, I was in Vienna and there was a lockdown. Um, and during the very bleak winter, one of the very decadent things that I did that I didn't really have time to do, but I did anyway, was sit in on Vladimir's literature classes that he was then teaching from Kiev via Zoom. Um, and since everything was on Zoom anyway, I thought, why not sit in? And he was, you know, he taught, he taught Shakespeare in translation. He taught Hemingway, he taught Salinger, and he taught Chekhov. And listening to Vladimir teach Chekhov, he's a wonderful lecturer, you know. And I would just, like, it would just be like these, like, two hours of pleasure. I would just, like, sit and listen to his beautiful Russian and listen to him go through Chekhov line by line. And I thought, nobody's going to love Chekhov the way Vladimir loves Chekhov. You know, what... Putin has done to people like that, you know, ostensibly in the name of protecting Russian culture is so grotesque. Well, authoritarian leaders never like the artists, uh, as we artists in America <laughs> are going to remember <laughs> when we see people like Trump running around. Um, thank you for joining us, Marcy. Um, we're going to end with a poem from Serhii. Um, is that the right way to say it? Yes, uh, called Dictionaries in the Service of the Church, which you gave us a recording of it that was is read by the poet Reginald Dwayne Betts, who's a past guest of the show. But before we go, we encourage all of our listeners to look up your writing on the Ukraine and Serhii Zhadan's novels, uh, which we will link to in the show notes. And also Vladimir Rafienko's uh, Seven Dillweeds translation, which you also sent us, which we will, we will yeah. talk in the show notes as well. Marcy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, and if you're going to text something in the show notes, his new novel that he wrote in Ukrainian for the first time, um, in, the, in some sense, the topic is also what it means to be a displaced person, changing the language you raise, called Mondegreen. And it's just now coming out. And there's some wonderful passage in it that kind of capture, capture the kind of existential tragedy of that displacement. Terrific. Um, listeners, look at our Lit Hub Radio show notes where you can find links to that book and others discussed during this episode. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. From Dictionaries in the Service of the Church, a poem by Serhii Zadan, a Ukrainian poet. I know why everything turned out like this for us. Too much dependence on dictionaries, on lexemes, and all those diphthongs that dissolve on the tongue. The trust placed in them is not justified. My language, I know. My dictionary is printed on bitter cream paper that I read in bars and on trains, which was bought on sale in East Berlin way back in the 90s when I didn't know you. I will die a patriot, even if you abandon this country forever. I will try to call your number, even if only voices from hell echo there. I will keep paging through my fucking dictionary, even if there isn't a single unused word left. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. We love hearing feedback from our listeners on social media. So we want to give a shout out to at Michelle Ajoda, who described our last episode on the long-term mental health effects of the pandemic as, quote, a wonderful conversation that finds words for two years of pandemic burnout. Thanks, Michelle. And also on Instagram, the listener goes by the tag at HaveBookWillRead, which is definitely a fiction, nonfiction podcast type person, wrote about reading Nadia Hashimi's novel, Sparks Like Stars, and then listening to our interview with her, which she called an enlightening accompaniment to my reading. We put a lot of effort into these episodes, and hearing comments like that from listeners is really encouraging. 
If you talk about a fiction nonfiction episode on social media, tag us. We'll include it in our feed. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating on and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where if you're an educator and want to use the podcast in the classroom, our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading, and let's hope for peace, especially in Ukraine.